Section 9. Part 2, Chapter 4 of An Essay on the Art of Ingeniously Tormenting by Jane Collier. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4. To your good sort of people, being an appendage to the foregoing chapter. Says Dean Swift in his poem of Cadenus and Vanessa, "'Tis an old maxim in the schools that vanity's the food of fools, yet now and then your men of wit will condescend to take a bit. And may we not, with some propriety, apply this to our ingenious art of tormenting? It is acknowledged that the chief adepts in our science are those only who are blessed with a proper share of spite and malignity. Yet observation has taught me that many a good man and many a good woman, who have possessed numberless virtues, have, now and then, recreated their spirits with a small touch of this pleasant sport. And, although they have not absolutely inflicted a strong torment, yet have gone so far in the art of teasing as greatly to perplex and disconcert the best laid intentions for giving them pleasure. An obliging, complying temper, as shown in the last chapter, may be finely worked and teased, by being forced either to do what is disagreeable, or to be always saying no. But the same temper and disposition, by never saying no, may very much distress others, as well as itself. To explain my meaning, take two or three short stories, and then, gentle reader, you will be the best judge of the justice of this observation. What gave me hint for these kind of reflections was the account which a young lady, whom I will call Felicia, was giving me of her friend Hermia, who, she said, was the best woman in the world, but, from too great a compliance in her temper, was perpetually falling into inconveniences herself, and making all her friends around her miserable. Hermia, said Felicia, is a woman whom I love and esteem as my own soul. Her real charity, her benevolence, her gentleness of disposition, show me that there is at least one human being in whom every human virtue is centred. So thoroughly am I blessed by the warmth of her friendship, and the kindness of her heart, that I should pronounce myself a monster of ingratitude, if I could move or act with any view but for her pleasure. Her greatest delight is in pleasing and obliging all her friends, but from an unwillingness to give trouble, she never requests any person to do any one thing in the world for her, fearing, I believe, that she should rob her friends of some pleasure of their own. Yet, as it is impossible to know her whole mind so well as she knows it herself, there must sometimes be such omissions to her as will put her to inconvenience, and grieve her friends to behold. In the beginning of our acquaintance, this passive disposition of my friend Hermia often gave me great pain, for, as she is so very averse to contradicting any proposal, that she will do a thing most contrary to her own inclinations rather than thwart another's, I have frequently found myself the cause of giving her great pain and uneasiness, when it has been the farthest from my inclinations to do so. Hermia is far from being of a weakly constitution, but has very strange disorders in her head, for which she is advised to walk long walks, and this, from her good health in all other respects, she is very well able to perform. We were one day in the country to walk, in very hot weather, home to her house, and the distance was about four miles. We were setting out while the sun was yet very high, on which I proposed to her, fearing, indeed, that the scorching heat would hurt her head, to stay till the cool of the evening. I observed to her, also, how beautiful the moon, being that night at the full, would look through the high trees, and in the clear river by whose banks we were to pass. Hermia made not the least objection, but readily consented, and we had, to me, 
a most agreeable and pleasant walk, nor did she seem less delighted with the various beauties of this rural scene than myself. But as soon as she came into the house, she was very much disordered, and really ready to faint away. Seeing me excessively concerned, she told me her complaint would soon go off, for it was only the common effect of walking in the moonlight. It was for that reason, added she, that I was desirous of walking in the middle of the day, and indeed should have done so, if you, Felicia, had not proposed staying till the cool of the evening. I gently complained of her compliance with any proposal of mine in a case where her own health was concerned, and she candidly acknowledged herself to blame. She promised, also, to speak her mind more freely another time. But before our discourse was ended, she called for some water to drink, and a bottle of wine standing by, I desired her to pour a little into the water, as I feared she was too warm with her walk, to venture on so cool a liquid as water just come from the pump. She readily took my advice, filled the glass half full of water, drank it off, and in less than five minutes fell into a strong convulsion fit. I was half at my wit's end. I sent for her physician, and he, on seeing Hermia, asked if she perhaps may be presumed, as she is a woman, to be weak, and not capable of considering the force of her own words, or the consequences of her own actions. But what shall we say to Albertus? Albertus is a man of great sense, an uncommon genius, and so very mild and gentle in his disposition that happy are all those who are nearly connected with him. To enumerate all his good qualities would, with as much truth as ever it was said, swell this volume to a folio. He has a friend, Horatio, who has the highest veneration and the justest regard for him, whose chief delight is in his company, and whose greatest pleasure would be that of being able, by any means, to add to the ease and satisfaction of his friend. But Horatio, like poor Felicia, is perpetually mortified by finding himself in some way or other the cause, the unhappy undesigning cause, of Albertus's distress. One day, seeing Albertus ill, and hearing him say that he must be in the city the next morning on very important business, Horatio asked him if he could not commission him to transact this business for him. Albertus thanked him, but said he feared it might prevent some business or pleasure of his own. Horatio assured him that he had no business of his own that day, nor any pleasure, but an invitation to a morning concert, which was an engagement too trifling for him to put in competition with being of any service to his most distant acquaintance, and much more so with his best friend. He begged, therefore, Albertus would inform him of the business. Albertus hesitated some time, then said that he had recollected some circumstances which made it possible for any one but himself to transact the affair, and he must therefore either go himself or put it off till another day, when he was in better health. Horatio, knowing the sincerity of his own intentions to serve his friend, and not doubting that Albertus, from long experience, knew it as well as himself, having also no desire of making a show of overstrained importunity, where he thought his offer could not be accepted, took his leave, wishing him health to transact his business, and success in the execution of it. Albertus, with great seeming good humour, returned his good wishes, by hoping he would have much pleasure in his musical entertainments. The next day, Horatio goes to the concert in the morning, and visits his friend in the afternoon. He finds him a little mended in his health, but appearing under great vexation of mind. He hastily and anxiously inquires the cause of his distress. Albertus answers that he had not been in health or spirits that morning to go into the city, that he had sent a man to transact the business for him, and by the blunder of that man he had lost two hundred pounds. 
since you found it was possible for another to transact your business for you, why, my good friend, cries Horatio, would you not send to me? Albertus mildly answers, you was engaged, sir, at a concert. You are very fond of music. I cannot bear, for my own convenience, to debar my friends of their pleasures. Oh, Albertus, Albertus, honestly answer me this question. If you believed your friend's regard for you was sincere, was you not robbing him of his greatest pleasure by refusing him an opportunity of doing you an essential service? It must be confessed that it is not consistent with the characters to whom this chapter is addressed, to say grating or ill-natured things with a design to torment, nor can they, by any means, be supposed to feign sickness or low spirits for the above-mentioned purpose. But, countenanced by wisdom, they may, if they please, when they are really sick or low-spirited, indulge the highest degree of fretfulness, peevishness, and ill-humour, and may also, from a thorough carelessness of their words and expressions, give some very random shots without positively taking aim. A habit of saying fretful things, without strictly examining into the truth of them, will bring a person into a belief of their reality. As for instance, if you frequently say that nobody cares for you, it will not be long before you will imagine all mankind your enemies. Or, if any person should once or twice make you wait, should miss an appointment or the like, by telling them that they always do so, you may work yourself into such a belief of its truth that a repeated behaviour to the contrary can with difficulty bring you to acknowledge and be convinced of your mistake. Whilst your good sort of people take the allowance that is given to the sick, of indulging every captious and peevish humour that will arise, or attempt to arise, in almost every mind, it is not from such that I fear the overthrow of our art, but the person uniformly cautious, both in words and actions, never to give the least offence, is our greatest and most powerful enemy. And that we have some such enemies abroad, experience has taught me to confess. Nay, what a strange creature did I once hear of. A young lady of title and fortune, who had servants, friends, and dependents at her command, was afflicted with a painful disorder, which at last deprived her of her life, for near twelve years, yet never took the opportunity of one of those advantages, to say a cross or fretful thing to any one. Though born to a high station, she chose a private life. The influence of her example, therefore, was not to be greatly dreaded. But what shall we say, if such a behaviour should even now shine forth, not far from a throne? If there should now be a living example of a person that, with as much exterior power as anyone can possess, next to our sovereign himself, and with as much interior power as the affections of a whole nation can give, never exerts that power, but for the pleasure and benefit, instead of the torment, of all her dependents. Should we not, my dear pupils, alarmed by the danger of such a shining exemplar, all assemble together, in order by some envious detraction to pull down this, our greatest enemy? Alas, she is above our reach. Therefore we have no hope left but in trying to reverse an old general observation and in arduously endeavouring to show that these our precepts will be more forcible towards promoting the love of tormenting than the most royal and illustrious example will be towards inculcating and teaching every Christian virtue. End of section 9